What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. And Fast Money does start right now, live from the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York's Times Square. I am Brian Sullivan. Your traders on the desk tonight are Pete Nigerian, Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, and Guy Adami. Tonight on Fast, we are all over the after-hours movers. Disney, Gilead, Snap, and Chipotle all reporting numbers moments ago. Their conference calls are underway as we speak. We are going to bring you the latest details as they break. Plus, he is the man who moves markets, and he has been sounding the alarm on the ticking time bomb in your portfolio. Volatility as it rips through stocks. He'll be here to tell us what he sees happening next. And how's your neck feeling? Because if you feel a little whiplash today, you are not alone. It was indeed a Katy Perry market, hot and cold, with the Dow trading in a huge 1,000-point range. And if you missed some of the turns, here's how this turnaround Tuesday went down. We began with nerves high and the Dow that dropped 500 at the open. Boom. Then buyers stepped in. We shot up 400 points in the blink of an eye. Then volatility returned. The Dow went negative again, only to have the Bears truly gored by the Bulls. <laughs> Dow ultimately closing up more than 500 points. So, mm. Guy Adam. Yes, sir. Is it Welcome safe? Welcome again. Thank you. <laughs> I'm here all week. Nice to have you. Yeah. Is it Try safe to go back into the market? Obviously, some people thought so today. It, it was in many ways a more volatile market today than yesterday. I agree with that. So imply, and that question, what you're implying is, is volatility over now? Have we seen the last of volatility? And I would answer, I think we're just beginning to see volatility. But is it safe to get back into individual stocks? And I would say short answer is yes. And Tim flagged Home Depot last night. Nothing changed with the fundamentals of Home Depot over the last week or so. So I think that stock has provided a sell-off where you can buy it. We talked about Micron yesterday. Look at what they did. They raised guidance. That stock was up, I think, 10% today. So I think volatility is here for a long time. Again, I would submit that the markets were in turmoil yesterday. They're still in turmoil today, yeah. other than the fact that we closed up 600 points. But individual names have shown themselves. Now you can start to see the winners from the losers. What's a little troubling about this is I think traders, investors want to put this in a nice, neat little box and say, hey, this was spurred on by higher realized vol on Friday, which triggered a lot of these systemic accounts selling as risk heightened selling more, getting, you know, essentially back to neutral. And this is part of what we had. We can blame it on. We can give the culprit to the XIV, which is this vol ETF. Bottom line here is we were concerned on Friday because interest rates moved to 286 on the 10-year. And, and the reality of a Fed that may be more in play than not is still with us, Pete. I, yeah. I don't know if that changed anything for you. No, I, I hear you. I mean, it's the velocity of what we were watching when you're talking about the rates. I mean, that's been absolutely flying to the upside, right? And then suddenly you've got to also consider algorithms. You've got to figure market, you know, the margin calls that were happening on Friday and I think as well yesterday. Maybe we flush some of that out. So I wonder if we have hit a level with the volatility index in the 30s where we actually go somewhere from the 30s now back towards the 20s. And I, I think we might find ourselves in that kind of a range. And the only reason I say that is later in the day, Brian, we saw some monstrous put buying in the volatility index I, itself. And I, yeah, wow. Dan, you know, Dan, I worry, though, because, listen, let's be clear. 
Uh, uh, the media does have a bias to the upside. We like it when numbers are up, not down. Not this you media, tend to, brother. No, you, you, you tend to worry less. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. But here's the point. I feel like if we would have ended down 600, there would have been more concern. I didn't like the market action. Even though we ended higher, it felt like we were literally all over the map, and there was a lot of conflicting programs going on today. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. As a trader, you know, when you see a three-day move like we had into the morning, you are covering shorts if you have shorts, and you are looking to actually deploy some capital um, if you had actually been smart enough to take some profits into this sort of event. So, you know, to me, I think that, you know, you know, we've been saying this now for weeks and weeks, and even the most bullish guys on the desk, the level of complacency here was getting a little nerve-wracking, and the fact that the market <clears> in January just seemingly went up. You know, I heard Jim Cramer say this this morning, and I think this is a really telling thing. He had CEOs calling him all last month saying, why is my stock going up like this? We got it last year. What the heck's going on this year? And when you see those insider selling, uh, buying ratios that re really hit some kind of out-of-whack numbers where they were selling, not buying anymore, this is insiders, you get to a point where we need to have the sort of move that we had to the downside to shake out some weak hands, some people that just got in because it was that kind of FOMO sort of situation. So if you ask about volatility, this is a very healthy thing. I mean, in my mind, you know, I was saying this for most of January, the healthiest thing, if you were a long-term bull, especially for the balance of this year, is to see some sort of okay. shake out and get, you know, kind of... We but need is, to get, is this the pause that refreshes? Yeah. Because, and well, we, are the, we in a place where the market can this, now okay? build So we had, like, really high correlations in the equity market, right? Everything seemed to be moving together. And now all of a sudden, you just mentioned Home Depot. And you mentioned Micron that uh, pre-announced last night. You know, we might see some dispersion. We might see people rewarding companies that are actually doing well. And you may see, you know, people piling into those stocks, a la Amazon. Did you notice how Google underperformed massively uh, Amazon and Facebook uh, today? And those Facebook and Amazon had good numbers and Google didn't, right? But so did we, we really, did we really, that. I think, I guess here's my better question, which is, was we what we saw Friday and particularly yesterday and maybe this morning? Was it a short-term thing caused by this implosion of this obscure short volatility instrument that was forcing liquidation and selling? Or no. was this the sign of things? Was it a one-off? It's, or is this going to happen it, again it, and again? I, I don't think you can put it in a neat little box. And I know you're not trying to oversimplify it. I think the question is, um, did we have a specific catalyst, which was this vol fund? And, we definitely and, did. And, and, yes, except for the fact that markets were so overbought a week ago last Friday on the 26th of January, we had to get to a place where you got some sanity back in things. And as good as the stock as Boeing has been in terms of their numbers, should they really be trading at a 33 multiple? Uh, this, is a, this is a company that historically has traded probably in the low 20s to mid-20s at best. You get to a place where you start to ask questions, have stocks priced too much in, even though I think that the S&P at a forward multiple of 16, 16 and a half right now looks interesting. But think about what Pete said quickly. You know, they saw, you saw put buying in, in the volatility index. Yes. But in the 20s, and if, if, we, were to, if we were to trade at down the, the 20 20s, strike itself, actually. But think about that. They that's, weren't touching that's that still before. almost twice, well, right. it's almost twice the normal volatility we've seen over the last couple of years. So even if we were to trade there, that's still heightened volatility, which <laughs> my point is, that's the environment. And I there has been some extremely something. smart paper in the options, more than I've ever seen. What Smarter side? Than ever. Well, I'll give you an example. They were buying the 35 strike puts in February, or calls in February, about a week or two ago. Those absolutely paid off because the volatility index hit 50 today. Now all of a sudden they're, and they're probably 20, free two weeks and ago. And they were almost nothing. You're right, right because yeah. you're talking about the volatility index that you know is trading at 1415 yeah. or something like that, and suddenly you get something. How about that the, trader in London that bought March 24 calls on the VIX at like 49 cents each a month ago? Well, the other thing is we're seeing that's this, a good payday. This started yeah. last Tuesday. We yeah. talked about this. I got a chance to be on the closing bell. We were talking about in the spiders. They were rolling down and they were taking off huge profits, Brian. But they 
they were rolling down even further, going 20 points down lower to buy even more. Not all the money that they made on the trade, but they wanted to still be in the trade in the spider. Okay, hold on a second, guys, because we have got some big breaking no. news right here. Hold, you hear what that is? That's a Kramer alert. He's still Whoa. cheering Booyah. from the Super Bowl. Let's bring in a man who needs no introduction, but we're going to give him one anyway. Mad Money's Jim Kramer. Jim, you heard our comment. We were joking around sort of that we did the special last night, Markets in Turmoil. There's almost more turmoil today overall. What do you make of today's moves? Well, look, I think that we got very oversold. I, I watched the S&P's proprietary oscillator, 6.8 last night, six minus 6.9 today. That is remarkable. It's only happened uh, five other times in the last three years. But I've been listening to you guys. Look, the fundamental problems with the market uh, had to do with mechanics. The fundamental problems with the companies had to do with valuation. Now, uh, both seem to be cured for a little bit, but I've got to tell you, and we're helped tonight by some good numbers, I think that we have made people realize the market can go down. So as we rally, I think we'll lose people, not gain people. You know, Jim, you said something on Twitter the other day. I think it was maybe yesterday. It was, it's been so chaotic the last couple of, uh, of, of hours and days, really, where you said the market needs help. Call the SEC. Things are broken. So, OK, so we took this XIV, you know, and we flushed it. It looks like that thing is, for the most part, gone. Do you worry there's more stuff like that out there? Well, I mean, look, the playing the volatility trade as if a volatility is some sort of asset class. Maybe that there's still some others out there, but that that whole concept has to go out the window. And what I have to say to you guys, because you're in the money management business, what kind of clown gives their money to someone who takes advantage of that ridiculous piece of paper that got wiped wiped out today? What kind of money manager? Well, I got to put that in quotes. Who, who gives their money to these people? I mean, honestly, guys, I mean, how many, you know, what are they, these guys are such buffoons. How do they raise capital? Do they just, like, now open up a new fund that's about uh, the FANG fund? Like, we're FANG? Yeah, I mean, I, Jim, hey, it's Tim. I, I think this comes from the excesses of a market where volatility was so suppressed, right. but people got so used to the central bank put that selling, you know, as we say, selling nickels in front of a steamroller worked for a long time until it didn't. Yeah, well, I just I find it shameless. The creation of these products is what I was talking about. The SEC about uh, really about a decade ago started blessing the stuff, and they blessed it incorrectly. Their theory was that the stock market's deep enough to handle any of this. We know that that's not true, but the SEC hates to ever admit that it made a mistake, so they continue to allow these double and triple uh, kinds of nonsense that are actually under the screen right now as we talk. And we understand that this stuff is bad. We all understand these guys, you and us. We understand that this stuff is reckless, but you know, they, there's a lot of hedge funds that just can't, they just can't avoid it. They should just go to the track. That's how valuable their thoughts are. All right, Jim, it has been five <laughs> years since you coined the term FANG for the FANG stocks, not for Diamondback Energy, which is another FANG you might like, who knows? Love but that. what do you think about the FANG stocks now, five, five years later? Okay, now I have to admit that, uh, uh, that I had some, fr some, fr some help from my friend Bob Lang on coining the term. Let's say you use help uh, liberally. Facebook's up 547%. Amazon's up 441%. Netflix is up 967 cents. Uh, the darn alphabet. I mean, give me a break. It's only up 183%. Of course, that's a 534% return. NASDAQ's up 124%. S&P's up 78%. I guess that makes alphabet look okay. But, you know, FANG works. And that's because these companies have unbelievable growth. They are defying law of large numbers. These are $100 billion, multiple $100 billion companies that really do quite well here. I think they're not done. I think Amazon is, is going to race itself to, to 17, 1700. Jim, 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 Jim. You're yeah, a hedge yeah. fund manager. You, you went to law school. Goldman Sachs. I mean, 
great best-selling author. Yeah, you sound like my now, mom. And listen, I know I'm going to get in trouble with this, but compared to the Eagles' victory, I mean, how can you put can contextualize for the people at home what that meant to you on Sunday? Well, I, I cried <laughs> like a baby. I weeped. I mean. I had to. It, it was the greatest thing that ever happened. I said to myself, maybe I don't even have to do anything more on this earth. It, it, it's, it, it's with me. Um, I'm going back and forth. You know, they call me coach. Some of the players call me coach. I addressed the team at the beginning of the year. You guys will love this. It was, it was in July. It, and I said, listen, guys, I got, in the, I got in the huddle and I said, you guys must practice UPOD. That's under promise and over deliver the whole season. You have to under promise and then over deliver, including these. And I said, you'll go to the Super Bowl and you'll win the Super Bowl if you do that. <laughs> well, what did they do in the playoffs? Well, they under promised and they were the underdog in the first game against the Falcons. They under promise and they were underdog against the Vikings. They under promise they were underdog against the Pats. This is the greatest U-Pod performance I have ever seen. Wow. Wow. All right, Jim, you got one, you got one more thing to do in there, sir. Yeah. Which, which is going to one trillion in market cap first, Apple or Amazon? You love them both. Which one's Amazon going there first? Amazon or Rooney McFaddy, to quote the uh, great uh, late Heilitzky. Uh, yeah, it's Anaron. It, it, Amazon is just a coiled spring. And by the way, he picked up a lot of bears in the last 48 hours. What do they know? Hey, you, you guys see the uh, trucks downtown today? I mean, all they said to me, when that's when you see the satellite trucks from the local news, what they said to me was, buy Amazon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> buy Amazon. Hey, by the way, we're so oversold in that, on the S&P oscillator. The other four times, you know, four out of five times, we then bounced almost 10%. So, uh, you know, I think this one can last a little. I love the fact that last night, the guys, what did you see it last night at 3.47 a.m. when we had the big spike in the futures? Yep. I mean, it was incredible. And then you go back to, you know, go back to sleep, or in my case, have my trainer come and beat the heck out of me for two hours. Hey, by the way, yeah. it was Mark Wolf's trainer when Mark Wolf was a Giant fan. And, you know, he lived in uh, Livingston. And, and all I can tell you is that this market was as phony as as baloney, you know, and like O-S-C-A-R-M-A-Y, you get me. <laughs> you know what's real? The what? Eagles' victory and the fact that I don't think you're going to take off that green tie for a couple days, Jim, <laughs> and you haven't slept for about well, 62 hours. You know what would have been, you know, I, I know I haven't bothered to sleep because unless I can dream of the Eagles, <laughs> it's a lot of time to not think about how we won the Lombardi Trophy. What's that, Jim? I am not letting myself sleep. That is an abstraction until oh, maybe oh, until next year when I go to Atlanta because as Carson Wentz said, get used to this. Carson who? E A G L E S Eagles. Jim, we'll see you tonight. Fly, fly Eagles, fly. fly. Way, we, we didn't even practice that. Don't miss <laughs> Jim. Case Keenum, who he play for? It's going to happen to Foles, starting for the Browns <laughs> next year. Don't miss Jim. He's going to have much more on this historic day in the anniversary of the Fang stocks on Mad Money tonight, 6 o'clock Eastern. All right, guys, let's go around the horn. What did you buy today, Pete Nigerian? Goldman Sachs. I, I always look what I think is the best stock out there that's been punished too much. Goldman Sachs is too cheap, and volatility is what they've needed to be a better company than Morgan Higher Stanley. rates help them? Giddy up, yeah. Tim? I actually bought some Embraer. I stay in the airline sector, not Boeing, though. I think south of the board, much better valuation. Wow, likes Brazil. Yeah, hates, too. hates America. Yeah, so uh, on the open today, I bought to cover SMH. That's a semiconductor ETF. I think that one came back to where I wanted it. In the XLF, I covered that, and I got long and little intel. Shaking my Chicago head. Mercantile Exchange, take a look at it, folks. They'll do well. When things trade, CME works. Mm. All right, there you go. A couple good things. we got a lot more to do. We're not going anywhere. We're on deck. We're all over the after-hours action. Yeah, you remember that? Disney, Gilead, Snap, up 20% right now.
Chipotle all reporting their earnings. Those conference calls underway. We're going to bring you the latest numbers, the latest comments on those stocks. Plus, it may be a ticking time bomb in your portfolio. And the man who moves markets has been warning you about it for months. is here to explain what is now going to happen next. And later on, Bitcoin's bad month getting even worse. The crypto commodity crashing below 7,000. But BK says there's only one thing that you need to know about the sell-off, which may be close to being over. He'll explain a lot more to do. You're watching Fast Money. Stick around. We have an earnings alert on Gilead Sciences, the stock bottle after hours. Go down to Meg Terrell, who is in the newsroom on the Blue Biotech phone, listening in. Meg. Hey, Brian. Well, the Q&A on Gilead's call going on right now. John Milligan, the CEO, talking with analysts. Uh, one of the things people are really trying to get a hold of here for Gilead is the future of its hepatitis C franchise. You did see the stock went down after hours, uh, potentially on their 2018 forecast. You can see here this is U.S. patients starting treatment with hepatitis C, and that's obviously been coming down. So a big question for Gilead, of course, is how are they going to to return to growth. And a lot of that could potentially come from M&A. That's an expectation, at least among the street. Gilead says it's going to repatriate $28 billion in cash this year. So, of course, a big question people have is, what are they potentially going to buy? Brian Scorney at Baird telling me that Gilead and Celgene have been the two most aggressive management teams talking about M&A this year. And, of course, we know that Celgene just did two big deals. So, on the call, Milligan was asked about technologies they want to bring in. He highlighted gene editing technologies. Four companies that highlight for you there, Editas, CRISPR, Intellia, and Sangamo, all of those companies between $1 and $2 billion in market cap. I've been talking with other analysts during the call about, you know, potentially what they could be looking to buy. They named a couple other names, including Bluebird Bio, Spark Therapeutics, both of those companies in one-time gene therapy treatments. Intercept, potentially, Brian Scorney telling me from Baird, uh, they're in liver diseases. And Biomarin, a bigger company in rare diseases, guys. These are all names people talk about for potentially Gilead looking at. Brian, back to you. All right, Meg, we'll let you get back on the phone to Milligan's Island, Meg Terrell, thank you very much. All right, let's huh? trade it there. Pete Nigerian. Well, we already knew what was happening there. Hep C was going down. That's been something that's happening for a very long time. That's why they made the kite acquisition. We also know HIV is very strong. International growth there is something they can lean on. Cash is king right now. They've got it, $41 billion. The kite acquisition is just one. I think we're going to see plenty more coming in the future. Really quickly, though, I think these guys really missed on that HCV. It looked like it had been stabilizing. This guidance for 3.5 to 4 is weaker than expected. All right, still ahead. Everybody owns them. Everybody seems to love them. But do you really know what's inside the ETFs you own? Tim Seymour is going to break down everything you need to know. I'm Brian Sullivan. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC, first in business worldwide. In the meantime, here's what else is coming up. Mom! Dad! It's evil! Don't touch it! That's what a number of investors are saying about leveraged ETFs. And you'd be surprised at what's lurking in your portfolio. We'll explain. Plus, with Bitcoin crashing, what are some of the biggest crypto ballers doing at a Bitcoin conference? <laughs> Hodling their you-know-what's off in Cancun. And we're live on the ground to hear why original crypto baller Brian Kelly isn't worried when Fast Money returns. And it goes a little something like this. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. Judgment day for volatility may be upon us, or maybe it already was, as the fear index spiking, sending a rather obscure but somewhat popular investment vehicle crashing, all but wiped out. We're talking about that inverse XIV exchange-traded note. It was a big bet on lower volatility, which collapsed last night after the VIX went crazy. 
Let's go down to the New York Stock Exchange where Bob Pisani has more on, uh, as I talked about earlier, Bob, traders who traded this needed an IV. Yeah, they did, exactly. You know, it's an exchange-traded note, or an ETN. What exactly is that? Well, an ETN is a debt obligation from a financial company like a Credit Suisse or Goldman Sachs. They're tied to an index or a benchmark like the S&P 500, or could be tied to a commodity or a volatility index, anything. Many ETNs are leveraged. They pay a multiple of performance. So if the index is up 1%, you get 2%, for example. Others are inverse products. They give the opposite of the performance. So if an index is up 1%, you could lose 1%, like this product. There's a fundamental difference between an ETN and an ETF. ETN investors don't own any underlying assets, nothing. If you own a gold ETF, for example, you have a claim on the underlying value of the gold. The ETN is entirely backed by the creditworthiness of the issuer. You don't own anything. The ETN universe, it's pretty small. There's only about 200 of them compared to about 1,800 ETFs. Many cover asset classes that were not originally able to be held in ETFs. All right, so why is this suddenly an issue in general? Because many of the largest ETNs are volatility products, and volatility has become a big issue. One of those, the Velocity Shares Inverse VIX, or XIV, Brian mentioned, is being liquidated by its backer, Credit Suisse. The SEC and the CFTC has repeatedly warned about leveraged and inverse products as I mentioned, many of which are ETNs. The ETF community is also concerned. It's not an accident. The biggest ETF provider, BlackRock, tried to get out ahead of this problem last night with this statement here. Inverse and leveraged exchange-traded products are not ETFs. They don't perform like ETFs under stress. That's why iShares does not offer them. BlackRock strongly supports a regulatory classification system that would label leveraged and inverse ETPs, that's exchange-traded products, differently than plain vanilla ETFs in order to clarify for both regulators and investors the risks associated with those products. Brian, the bottom line is the ETF community has been taking in oceans of money last year for plain vanilla ETFs, and they don't want any kind of other aspects of this business to get in the way of those oceans of money that's coming in. Yeah, they could try that, Bob, but you got those acronyms out there. And if you're a retail investor, it's easy to say, oh, that's one thing right. and that's another. I mean, they, you do get lumped in. Bob Pisani, <coughs> thank you very much. Appreciate that. Guys, let's trade this here. Uh, you, you get my point. I mean, you can say what you want. You can come out if you're BlackRock and say ETFs aren't ETNs or ETPs or whatever. But this is a wake-up call to retail investors, is it not? Well, be careful. Uh, here's what I say about this. First of all, you know, everyone should take have some accountability over what they buy. And something's called an ETN. You should try to figure out why is it not called an ETF. I know that sounds obvious. There's also no free lunch. So if something is a levered product, it means that at some point you are paying for that implied or that inherent leverage. You can't just hold uh, a, a low vol ETF forever and hope that actually it's going to be worth the amount, even in an environment where that goes sideways. This was a $1.1 billion product, and, and that's not a lot of money on Wall Street, and yet we look at, if it didn't do all the damage, it certainly contributed to a lot of the damage, right? I mean, this is one thing that did all that, it has a 171-page prospectus, according to our Leslie Picker, and here we are talking about one it. day later and everything's fine <laughs> we've all become uh yeah well nerd we're a nerd phds and i mean the real the so it's, we started XIVs. the show the real question is is this is this over is it is it ended now with the death of xiv that's I, the only question right now and i would submit not. no i mean i think pete and i sort of might go back and forth in this he's probably right vol will probably trend lower but in the low to mid 20s that's still high it's still 
much higher than we've seen over the natural course of events the last five years. I think it's just a time, time frame, too, because uh, over a short time frame, yeah, we can be up in the 30s again. But I think if you go extend that out just a little bit, Brian, and I'm only talking weeks, I think we're going to find ourselves back in the 20s consistently or less rather than going into the 30s and trading higher than that. I think you always have to remember one thing about the volatility index. It's a great yep. measuring stick. I never trade the volatility index. I talk about it almost every single day. I trade off of that through the spiders. That's the trade for me, the SPY, the S&P 500. I trade that. I look at volatility index yep. only as a measure. Well, the VXX is up after hours, and it's had high vol volume. People right. aren't afraid of vol volatility. All right, your next guest is the man some say moves markets. He has been sounding the alarm on the very subject we've just been talking about, which is volatility. Let's bring in now Marco Kalinovic. He is the global head of derivatives and quantitative strategy at J.B. Morgan. Marco, answer the question we just asked. Is this over? Is this volatility-laden you know, giant moves up or down, done. So we put, a note, put out a note yesterday, and we basically said the worst of a selling, which was coming at the back of the hedging of S&P index options, and to some extent some of these products that you mentioned, we think the worst, of is, worst is over. Uh, we were basically saying, like, look, some volatility will persist. You know, it's not going to just disappear in one day, but we think basically this is a sort of time to start getting into market. We think sort of fundamentals, both on a corporate side as well as on a macro side, did not change at all. We see this more as a technical market glitch that, yes, will sort of have some sort of uh, repercussions to, for, for volatility, meaning volatility is going to stay like a little bit elevated. But we think it's a time probably to start stepping in a market, probably opportunity to buy. Marco, and we, yeah. why do you think this relatively small instrument, and maybe it wasn't blamed yeah. or responsible for everything, $1.1 billion, mm. that's nothing in Wall Street parlance. Yeah. Why was that able to do so much damage? I, I don't think actually it was the, the sole driver of it. You know, I think it was one of the contributors. I think the bigger, bigger impact was from hedging of whole S&P index options. You know, keep in mind, clients tend to buy put options. Market makers tend to sell put options. When the market falls, there's a rush to hedge that. You know, we call that gamma hedging, delta hedging. And basically, if these flows become very large, they can overwhelm the market. They can overwhelm the liquidity of electronic mar market makers. What we saw yesterday was a basically proper flash crash at 310. That was down 6.5%. Basically, liquidity disappeared. Electronic market making liquidity disappeared. You know, so, of course, the uh, VIX uh, issue and ETN issue compounded the problem. My guess is that some dealers or, 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 or hedgers tried to actually proxy hedge VIX futures with S&P futures. But I actually think it was a smaller part. You know, it was clearly one of the more dramatic moves when you have a sort of wipeout on a product and VIX futures going to 38. But mm -hmm. I don't think that was the main driver. I think it was one of the contributors, and there are a few of them. Hey, you know, Marco. Brian, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Tim. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, it's Tim. First of all, great call on this because I think you were right there with this. In your note, you also point out Friday's Fed, no, the, the payroll numbers. And boosted up the, the realized vol on the market. And that's really a function of what central banks are doing. So why doesn't this continue to haunt us? You know, I personally think that, uh, you know, bond yields moved up quite a bit. You know, if you look at the speculation, CFTC, CFTC numbers for bond speculative shorts, they're at record highs. Um, you know, I just don't think that we'll have, like, kind of linear type of increase in rates. You know, I think rates may stabilize here. Um, you know, keep in mind 2011, 2010, we had yields like 10-year yield, 3.5%, 4%. You know, we had a weaker growth. 
So I think people should kind of put all these things in the context. You know, I don't think sort of the, the inflation scare or such, you know, this was more really technical glitch. Systematic strategies, you know, CTAs did start selling sort of uh, yesterday, midday, uh, that compounded as well. You know, you had this volatility glitch and you had the, basically these gamma hedging flows that just overwhelmed electronic market makers. You know, we have this electronic liquidity that when the things get bad, like, you know, they pull liquidity back effectively. Uh, so that's very similar to, to what happened in August 2015. This time it happened in the middle of a day, you know, on August 15 happens, uh, 2015 happened sort of before the market, so it looked worse, but it's essentially the same thing what happened. You know, there's a great scene in the movie Airplane, which I won't get into, but I happen to speak Marco. <laughs> so let me just try to synthesize pretty much what he just said. He said, there's no systemic risk here. It seems to be a two-day event that could extend a few days more, but we shouldn't be too scared for what's transpired over the last two and a half or three trading days, Brian. Marco, is that correct? That, that's that's basically correct, you know. So you have a number of players, you know, like don't so sort agree of. with him, Marco. You don't have to agree <laughs> no, with him. No, he said basically. Let, let me, which let means me just let me just add, like, look, I don't want to completely downplay this. I think sort of the the volatility complex, the uh, option S and P option complex, that that is done, you know, and that's a, probably the biggest punch to the market. You will see some sort of aftershocks because we we talk about these volatility targeting funds, you know, and when volatility goes up they need to slightly de-risk or, or, or de-risk with some pace. So I think these type of outflows could persist for like a week or two. But we don't think these outflows are actually strong enough to basically push the market, further crash the market. And we do think that the sort of strong fundamentals, both on a corporate side and on a macro side, will actually draw in investors who want to actually get equity exposure here. So, so we think probably worst is behind us. All right, Marco Kolonovic, thank you very much, buddy. We appreciate that. And I'm sorry for butchering your name at the beginning of the segment. And at the and end. And at the end. And at the end. <laughs> I'm Virginia. You know, I'm good, but I ain't perfect. Uh, Let's trade nice this. Job, pal. When you stop laughing, why don't we get serious and trade I this? I am a lot of serious. I'm always serious. Tonight. I'll tell you what. Okay. Here's one thing I'll say. What's interesting about the move over the last couple of days is you think that the riskier asset classes would be underperforming. Emerging markets took this opportunity over the last couple of days to actually outperform and break higher on what's been a long-term trend of their rebounding back. So all I would say is despite this risk-off, environment, riskier asset classes actually have come back very well. Tom, thank you. Pat, you want you to say it, something? Like well, you know, what, what we continue to see over the last couple of trading days has been people rolling down, Brian. So people have been expecting a little bit further push to the downside, including today. So despite the fact that we're up 500 points to finish the day, there were points during the day where things didn't look very good. It looked like we were going lower. I think we're going to still see some lower lows than we've already seen, and people are going to shake a little bit, but that's okay for now. Yeah, I would just add one other thing is that, you know, when there's a lot of uncertainty, no one can put their finger on why this happened over the last few days. The market traded very technically. If you look and see where the Russell 2000, the IWM, the ETF that tracks it, look where that bounced right at 145. Look at where the S&P bounced at 2600. There were some levels that made a lot of sense that looked like they were prior breakout levels, prior support, that sort of thing. So they kind of held here. So you may have a How about one the acceleration forward. that final two hours in terms yeah. of margin calls, right? I mean, you watch that acceleration of how we dropped. It was absolutely perfect yesterday, the way that worked. It's true. Yeah, Barclays, though, all the note guys saying that they think there could be another $225 billion in equities being sold to meet any further leverage requirements if we see volatility spike up. If. If. Something to watch. All right, well, we have seen the spike in the VIX. The options market seems to think the surge in volatility is about to simmer down a bit. Dan, what did you make from today's action? Well, you know, listen, when you put Jim Cramer's comments about the XIV, when he said, what kind of head fund managers are buying this product to bet on short vol, you know, he said they can go, you know, do whatever. 
This trade that I want to talk about here in the VIX was really interesting today. It was a massive trade. Um, call, or total volume, actually, the VIX was three times average daily volume. And a big chunk of it came just before 11 o'clock today when a trader exited a long vol position in the VIX. Let me just tell you exactly what they did. It was in March expiration. They sold to close almost 250,000 of the March 1525 call spreads. They sold them at $3.30. And they bought to close almost 250,000 of the March 12 puts for 30 cents to close. This is a really popular, it's been a really popular hedge fund trade for years now where they sell a downside put or near the money put to buy call spreads. They do it for a little premium and then they have all this upside exposure. So to me, this trader took the opportunity on the vol pop to get out of this trade. Okay, getting out. For more options action, of course, check out the full show every Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time with Dan Nathan and some other guys. Tell ahead, do you own an <laughs> ETF? Odds are most of you out there do. But how well do you really know what you are buying? Tim Seymour has three simple guidelines for ETF invest. That's four, Tim. That's four. Mark, careful. Marco, Be careful. careful. How about that? On, He's going to help you save a lot of money later on in the show. Plus, two big after hours movers include Disney and Snap. Snap, by the way, surging. We're going to hear from the CEOs of both coming up after the break. That was dangerous. <laughs> Welcome back to Fast Money. It is time for another earnings whip. <clears throat> Disney and Snap reporting their numbers after the bell today. Both of those stocks on the move in the after-hour session. Disney rallying more than 2%. But get this, Snapchat snapping up more than 20%. And we have got a dynamic duo breaking down both those moves. Julia Borston's been on tabs with Disney. Deirdre Bosa has been all over Snap earnings. Let's get down to Julia first. She'll tell you what Disney CEO Bob Iger had to say about the quarter. Julia. Well, uh, Brian, Disney beat expectations thanks to its parks and resorts division, which benefited from higher attendance here in the U.S. as well as higher consumer spending. Plus, it saw unexpected growth at its cruise ships and Disneyland, Disneyland Paris. Now, Bob Iger also talked to us in a way that gave investors reason to be confident about some challenges to Disney's media networks division and ESPN in particular, saying that digital distribution is helping to compensate for cord cutting and subscriber declines are slowing. He said that he's seeing signs that young people are coming into the, the, the TV subscription business that many people thought were cord nevers, and he's seeing them starting to adapt, adopt packages like Hulu's um, new TV um, service that over the top service. The fact that it costs $39, he says, is proving very um, appealing to that younger generation. He says he sees that as a very good sign, um, especially considering the fact that ESPN and all the other Disney channels are in those services as well. Now, Iger also revealed some details of the company's first direct-to-consumer app, announcing that ESPN Plus, which will launch sometime this spring, will cost $4.99 a month. Sometime in the spring, we're going to launch a completely revised and um, uh, basically redesigned ESPN app that will include an array of live programming that is not available, live sports, live sports events, not available on the current channels, and that's by the thousands. One interesting um, other announcement from Bob Iger. He just announced that the upcoming Marvel film, Black Panther, it launched the week from Friday. He says ticket sales are outpacing those for any other superhero movie ever made. Back over to you. 
Wow. I know there's a lot of optimism about that movie as well. It looks fantastic, by the way. Julia Borston, thank you very much. All right, guys, Disney. Disney, listen, not the greatest performer in the last couple of weeks. Anybody here buying Disney? I think still I think the valuation, they deserve a premium valuation, without question, I want to argue. The question is, what's the right valuation? I still think it's too rich. I mean, the EPS beat, yeah. Revenue missed. Pete and I were talking about it. That's been disappointing for quite some time. Are people going to spend five bucks on this app? I have no idea. I could watch cricket on, on my regular screen, I'm sure. So I don't know if it works. I was say, wouldn't you not agree, though, that these guys in a sector that's probably put a base under its multiple right now deserve that premium? Their effective tax rate comes down probably five points. Uh, Disney's the one you go with here. And they do have some growth. When you look at the parks, I mean, that's, that is impressive. I mean, some of those numbers yeah. are actually bigger than people I think ever would have expected. Yeah, stock 8.5% of its 52-week high. Let's go now to Deirdre Bose in San Francisco. <laughs> Deirdre, you've been listening in on Snapchat's earnings call, and, man, that stock is soaring. <laughs> Yeah, and Brian, it's certainly a more uplifting earnings call this quarter than the last one beyond EPS and revenue beats. It's daily active users numbers getting investors excited and it's ad strategy making a very important transition. Here's what CEO Evan Spiegel just said on the call. Our advertising business changed profoundly over the past year as we migrated the sale of our Snap ads to an automated auction. Over 90% of Snap ads were bought programmatically during Q4 which means that the auction transition for Snap Ads is largely behind us. Now, the auction-based model is what Google and Facebook use, and for it to work, Snap is likely attracting more advertisers. So that's what's important there, Brian. Back over to you. Deirdre, Deirdre, thank you very much. Appreciate that. Guys, Snap, obviously, maybe a little that's short it. covering. Well, that's that's what will short interest do for you? Just maybe you. a lot of short I, covering. I think, I think for now, that's it, and I'll tell you why. You know, a lot of investors were kind of worried about this uh, redesign of the app, and you saw that they haven't fully rolled it out. It's going to be rolled out by the end of, uh, I think, this quarter. Um, but the fact that they gained as many DAUs as they did daily active users, I think is a great sign. And then now that they have this uh, programmatic advertising shift, this could all happen all at once. That so. ARPU is impressive. No, I know. I so, mean, so, so, so I mean, just to, to say that this was all short covering, they're done. Well, here's I mean, the thing. So I'm just going to tell you. This is Wall back Street, to the ideal guys, price. Guys, Wall Street's off sides on this. There's only five buy ratings. There's 18 holds and there's 11 sells. There's 20. That's great news. That's great news. What I'm saying is I think there is more upside. Look at the move that Twitter has I'm totally wrong. He's misreading you. What did you say? What did you think? The way you presented it, it sounds like it's done. It's done. They put a low in here. Giddy up, Oh, then you Giddy up, Short interest ratio is 11, reasonably high. There you go. Go Snapchat. We're keeping it. By the way, small side note: we played Whip It. Did you guys Devo. know that D E V O? Yeah, or, yeah, by Devo. Dennis, Dennis Gartman went to high school with Devo. Say, they knew each other. Class of 1990. You know, I, I tell you what, you you, you can see a similarity there. Coming up, Bitcoin's gone bonkers, surging more than 1,500 <laughs> since the lows early this morning. Has it finally found a bottom? BK Brian Kelly will join us from an undisclosed location. Plus, do you think you know what's inside your ETFs? Think again, because Tim Seymour, who just wants to be on camera constantly tonight, is going to give you some stuff about some other stuff right after this break. (laughs) It was indeed a pretty big day for Bitcoin with both the U.S. SEC and the Commodity Futures Trading Commission going to the Hill to discuss the future of crypto regulation. So while all of this has been going down, where has our resident crypto baller been for the last couple of days? Well, we decided to track him down using the find my iPhone function. And he is apparently in sunny Cancun, Mexico. Quintana Roo had a really big crypto conference, which for some reason is in Cancun. 
Uh, BK, you've been at the conference now presumably for a couple of days. Obviously, we're coming into a slide at 10000 bucks or so. What is the mood? What is the feeling? What is the sentiment around Bitcoin? Uh, well, well, listen, I mean, I, I understand you guys in the equity markets there may have experienced a bit of volatility in the last couple of days. So welcome, welcome to the crypto world. That's what it's like every day here. Um, you know, the, the mood here is, is, is um, still optimistic. I mean, we, we, there's about 175 people here that are some of the, the smartest people in the world that are building the products on top of the blockchain, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and those other protocols. And um, you know what? They're very optimistic about the future. Yes, prices come down. Yes, there's, there's been euphoria and panic. Um, but from my perch, you know, nothing has stopped. The development hasn't stopped. The institutional interest hasn't stopped. Um, so in terms of, you know, what are the catalysts going forward? Those are all still on track. There's got to be some, but Brian, I get it. I understand the optimism, right? Like the Cleveland Browns sell out the stadium every year and, and, and you know, they have a tough wow, year seemingly tough, every year. That's that's point is, if you, oh, man, no, I'm, if you, no, I'm on. complimenting Cleveland. Oh. If you believe oh. in something, you stick with it. The crypto buyers obviously believe in it. They stuck with it, but there has to be, I mean, people have been bruised, I'm sure. What's the, what's the other side? There's got to be some no, frustration, I mean, listen, confusion. The, what? The other, the other, of course, the other side of this is that people that had, you know, X amount of dollars three weeks ago to build their product only have half of that X at this point in time. There's still plenty of money going around. It's not to say that people aren't bruised. It's not to say that people haven't gone, oh, my God, we were at 20000 now we're at 6000 But frankly, and we do this every single night on the show, is you know, when there's panic, when there's blood in the streets, that's the time that investors and speculators need to come in. So, yes, it's brutal. Yes, it's horrible. But you know what? Now's the time to but be But do you think the hearings it. were a win for crypto in general today, Brian? No question about it. It was a home run today. You couldn't have asked for anything more from the SEC and the CFTC. They were very reasonable. Uh, they said, listen, this is a new technology. We do not want to stifle innovation, but at the same time, we want to make sure people aren't being defrauded. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. That's exactly what we want our regulators to do. Hey, Absolute hey, home run, green light for this space. Brian, uh, I see your comments that you think, according to what folks are saying down there, investors kind of feel like it's 1995. Developers feel like it's 98. Point out what that difference means. Yeah, you know, I'm glad you pointed that out, Tim, because that was the one takeaway from this is that, you know, investors are saying, hey, we're going to build all these things. We're going to build the next Facebook. We're going to build the next Amazon uh, on top of this. And the developer saying, hold up, folks. You know, we are still at the, at the stage of the TRS-80. We, we are barely out of the, you know, the DARPAnet, ARPANET era of the Internet, meaning we're at the early stages. They're still building the tools that somebody like a Mark Zuckerberg is going to build a Facebook on. Um, so it, it's kind of interesting, you know, now that we've, this has gotten a bit mainstream and Wall Street's in it, everybody's projecting the future. I think Wall Street investors are probably five to ten years ahead of where the development actually is. Okay, BK, hey, listen, uh, try to enjoy yourself down there in Cancun, okay, buddy? <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll do what I can. I'm bringing you guys back at Pinata, so be ready. Yeah, ben, ben, that Toblerone you brought from Switzerland. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Chief. Come on, man. More than one, uh, too. Guys, one. Let, let's talk, let's talk serious. On a serious note, there's a lot of equities that have been correlated. The overstocks the world, the riot blockchains the world, 
they're getting walloped, not with the market, forget, also with Bitcoin. Forget the equities. Let's talk about the cryptos. I mean, okay. like, this is the thing that actually had this moonshot in November, December, and, and then has crashed. I mean, listen, you know, we've had guests on every night for months now, and I don't think we've had a single guest who suggested that you should have more than 5% of your investable assets in these sorts of things. So when we talk about the pain here, it's not like you're seeing your FANG portfolio go down 10% in three days. This should be a very small part of your uh, investable assets here. So to me, I just, you know, I don't see that argument. All right, still ahead. They say that you should own what you know, but that's not always the case when it comes to ETFs and other products like it. How do you know what you're really buying? Tim Seymour eventually is going to break it all do down this. for us when Fast Money returns. Oh. All right, welcome back. You think you know what you're buying when you invest in an ETF. Well, you might want to think again sometimes because they are not all as transparent as they seem or the name implies. But don't worry, because Tim's got your back. Three simple guidelines for ETF investing in a little segment we call The More You Know. Thank you, Brian. And it's really important to know your ETF. We've talked all about what's been going on in the ETF space. So here are three bullet points. First of all, weighting. Is this a market cap or an equal weighted ETF? And if you think about something like the EEM, for example, NASPERS, excuse me, well, NASPERS is up there, but a Tencent and BABA right at the top because they are the biggest names in the index as opposed to the ones where it's equally weighted across. Two, are you investing in an active strategy or a passive strategy? So obviously, a lot of the early stage ETFs were passive strategies, replicating the S&P, replicating the small cap indices, uh, or what's become very, very popular are active ETFs that have smart beta and different factors that a manager will adjust daily, weekly, monthly, you name it. Finally, what are the core specs that you're looking at? When you look at the description page or the fact sheet of an ETF, you're typically looking at what the, what, not only what the fees are, what this will cost you, and those are coming down like most fees, but also how much liquidity is there in that ETF? How big is the market cap? How liquid are the underlying components of that ETF that make up where this thing's going. So let's keep moving on and, and give you an idea of what I want to bring up today. The XRT, which is the S&P Retail Select uh, ETF, which covers the retail sector, right? It's had a very nice run, as you can see. We've had this big run through here. This pulled back like everything else. And the question for a lot of people now is, what do I want to own in the retail space? But we bring up this ETF because ultimately, you have to know what's inside your ETF. And this, to me, is a bit of a misnomer. When I think retail ETF, I think I'm going to have Macy's. I think I'm going to have Walmart. I think I'm going to have Home Depot. When, in fact, those are not really the components of this ETF. Doesn't mean it's a bad ETF. In fact, it's a very diverse ETF. But what's in here is Shutterfly. Netflix. Netflix? Well, maybe Coles. That's the whole point, folks. Know what's inside your ETF, and that is some work you should do on your own before you go out and buy. And, th and that's one to grow on. Tim, thank you. Up next, really final trades. <laughs> Heat final trade. Goldman Sachs banged out too far. It's Tim. going up. Bob is oversold. Get in there. Same with Intel. Intel. Alibaba, Intel. Guy Dami. Hi, hi Brian. Uh, Freeport McMoran, Brian. All right, some interesting so picks there, guys. Thank you very much. We'll see you again Thank tomorrow you, night. Probably. But a wild day. Mad Money begins right now. Uh. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.